Our audience is three beers in, so we'll see how this goes. If you guys want to, come up front because there's a unspecified prize for people that come up front to participate. I don't even know what it is. Uh, let's give a round of applause for Congressman Justin Amash, who stayed over uh, Saturday to join us. Give it up for Justin. Thanks. And an extra day inside the Beltway, I assume, is, is a little bit less of your soul that you'll keep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, the last time we spoke was in the spring. And I don't know if anything's happened since then that we can talk about, but uh, <laughs> I was thinking that, that maybe we would start with your, with your Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July. Uh, why'd you do that? Well, I'm tired of the two-party system. And um, yeah, we can clap for that. Yeah. Please, please clap. So, you know, um, I've been in Congress for several years now, and it became clear to me that the thing that was frustrating me most was just the, the whole party system here. If you don't stick with your, I don't know, we're going to get bad mic feedback now. Do it like, do it like this. By, by the way, this is the first time we've done this, so it's possible that things are going to go wrong. Okay. Yeah, just up on it, but, but lean it back. All right, how about now? Okay, perfect. Good? Good. All right. So, please clap. All right. <laughs> okay, thank you. At least somebody remembers who Jeb Bush was. Right. <laughs> okay, so, so it, it became clear to me that uh, one of the biggest problems we were facing is, um, is not uh, the lack of principled... Um, you know, Republicans, it's that we have and and we do lack principled Republicans, let's be let's be honest. But it's that the two party system drives people to uh, do things that they otherwise would not do. So there are lots of people who come in with very strong principles, but there is every incentive um, through the party system to uh, cast aside those principles. And they're they're usually told at first that it's, um, you know, just taking one for the team on a small thing and then it gradually becomes something bigger and bigger and eventually the party controls everything you do and even people who came in with uh, very strong beliefs very strong principles um, find themselves uh, as, as totally different characters just maybe even one or two years into the um, into their service so uh, I think that um, we need more independence involved in politics. We need more people to break away from the two-party system. It doesn't mean that um, you can't be a Republican or you can't be a Democrat or you can't be a Libertarian or, or a Green Party member. What I'm saying is if you sell your soul to the party, if you decide that the, um, the party is more important than your principles, then um, you, know, you have no business being here and, and you're actually doing a lot of harm to our country. By the way, for those of you who are listening to this, um, for some reason there's a bubble machine on yeah, stage. So with independence <laughs> comes bubbles, which is awesome. That's right. I actually want to I want to go back to the, the piece you wrote on, on the 4th of July. You, you quote extensively from George Washington and his farewell address. And, and this, this quote, I think, is pretty powerful. The dis disorders and miseries which will result gradually 
which result gradually inclined the minds of men to seek security and response in the absolute power of an individual, and sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. And it, the reason I like that quote is that I, I think he, he anticipated, it's interesting that Washington is warning us of this because he, in a sense, was an iconic uh, cult-like figure in America's founding, but, but he warned us against just following a guy and giving that guy a blank check. And I've, I feel like both parties have done that yeah. in, in my lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, um, I often pe- hear people say things like, well, don't both sides this or don't both sides that. Um, the, the reality is both parties have a lot of problems. I mean, we, we really see it manifesting itself now uh, in Donald Trump, um, where the Republican Party is completely beholden to him. Um, and everyone can, everyone can see it very clearly. That's not, um, that's not very hidden. But what a lot of people don't see is what goes on in Congress, where um, you have party leaders and in, in the current situation, Speaker Pelosi, who really controls the place with an iron fist. And the Democrats really do fall in line with what she wants. And so it may be someone like Donald Trump who's doing it on Twitter and very upfront about um, sort of dominating people's lives. But what, what people don't see is that behind the scenes, the same thing is going on on the Democratic side. They are beholden to their leadership in the same way that many Republicans are beholden to Donald Trump. And they will not break from that leadership. And if that leadership does wrong, they will pretend that the leadership did no wrong. And, um, and that's really dangerous for our country. And I think uh, George Washington was really onto that. So last time, last time you did the podcast, and I'll do a shameless plug for the Amash Kibbe on Liberty, we, we talked about Hayekian libertarianism. And I, and I think one Go of the- Hayek. I know there's, there's three there's of us. Some, uh... There's three of us and two of us are on stage right now. Yeah. Um, but it's, and, and last time we sort of talked about values and ideas and the, and the philosophy mm-hmm. of freedom and how free people come together and do beautiful things through cooperation. I want to focus more on uh, sort of the uh, political viability of the, of the stance that you're taking today because this, we're right under the airport, by the <laughs> yeah. way. Uh, because there's, there's, you look, you look at the data, and particularly uh, Generation Z, and and I'll quote from one of the most credible sources of news, Teen Vogue. Oh come on, it's at least as credible as the New York Times, right? If I can find it, here it is. Is this really Teen Vogue? Yeah, it's really Teen Vogue. Okay. Um, <laughs> You don't read Teen Vogue? <laughs> no. Sorry. So I was looking for data uh, showing the, the very obvious trend amongst uh, millennials and Generation Z where they're not registering as Republicans or Democrats anymore. They're registering as independents if they register at all. And they're looking to sort of curate their politics the way they would curate music, which has been a theory of mine. And I found Teen Vogue sort of... Uh, um, proving my point. So today, at least, Teen Vogue is is 100% spot on. Um, And according to a Pew Research report prior to the 2016 election, 50% of young adults self-identified as political independents 
although they are much more likely than older generations to hold liberal views on a variety of social and political views. And they're, they're talking about things like marriage and, and sexual identity, things like that. And that trend with Generation Z has, has only grown. And, and the uh, president and executive director of Rock the Vote says this generation rejects labels and putting things in boxes and that tendency isn't exclusive to politics. They're rethinking and reimagining systems and institutions and terms and even ideas. And I think that's absolutely true. And I've just documented it uh, through Teen Vogue. But that said, there aren't that many independents out there that succeed in politics. Why is that? I think there are a number of reasons. Um, one is that this is a trend that's been happening in more recent years. I, I think in previous generations, you had... Uh, two parties that were much stronger, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And over the last, um, I'd say, decade or two, it's that's starting to weaken. And we're, we're finally getting to the tipping point, I think, where uh, people are able to break away from the parties. And uh, a lot of times what happens, frankly, is that the candidates who run in um, run outside of those two parties aren't the strongest candidates. And I, I I mean, no offense to some of the great candidates who do run outside those parties, because there are great candidates. But uh, in terms of uh, numbers, we just don't have that many who run outside of the two parties, because usually in their own minds, they think, well, if I want to be credible, I have to run within one of these two parties. So some of the stronger candidates have run within the parties. And I think that will start to change. And um, it's it's hard for someone, I, I think, right off the bat to run as an independent even now. It is easier for uh, someone like me who's been in Congress, who's established um, a reputation with his constituency to then make a move and, and be an independent and, and get elected. Um, but over time, I think the amount of time you have to build up um, that kind of support with your constituents before you can do it will will narrow um, to the point where we'll eventually have independents who can just run right out the gate and compete with the two parties. Um, or Libertarian Party members or Green Party members or Constitution Party members or whatever it might be, they might be able to compete as well because these uh, two major parties are getting weaker and weaker. And that's, that is due to changes in um, the way young people think about things. And I, I see it all the time. Students come to visit us at the Capitol all the time and I talk to them and uh, very few of them view themselves as just hardcore Republicans or hardcore Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've said this for years, and I, I feel more strongly about it than ever. I feel like technology is, is enabling a, not just a libertarian moment, but a shift where, where everybody's sort of empowered to, to curate things for themselves. And the, the laggard in all of this is politics. Politics is the one thing mm -hmm. where the top-down systems of yesteryear still seem to be clinging to power. I'm thinking of... Uh, <laughs> See, they're going to shut us down. <laughs> it's a two-party duopoly coming to yes, disrupt our events. State. Well, I, I actually that would... think that's probably Hillary Clinton on her way to arrest Tulsi Gabbard right now. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about this, and I, I have no idea what you're going to say, but uh, as you may know, Hillary Clinton said uh, yesterday or the day before that she believed that uh, uh, Jill Stein, Green Party candidate in 2016, was a Russian asset, uh, which is very loaded, that. very loaded term. And and she went on to say that 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 they're grooming someone in the Democratic primary, and she was clearly referring to Tulsi Gabbard. Um, it 
it seems like that is sort of the machine's desperate last attempt to to undermine the disintermediation of politics. What, but what do you think? Is, is Tulsi Gabbard a Russian asset? Uh, not from anything I've seen. Uh, I mean, uh, she has unique views on a whole number of issues, but um, the idea that you should just make accusations without presenting evidence um, is becoming uh, more and more commonplace. And I think it plays right into the hands of Donald Trump. And I explained this on Twitter and um, some on the left did not like uh, what I said. But look, it, D Donald Trump um, had an investigation going on him with respect to Russia. I think it was a legitimate investigation. Um, I read the Mueller report. I, I think he's committed impeachable conduct. When Hillary Clinton comes in with this kind of stuff and says um, someone's a Russian asset, whether it's Jill Stein or Tulsi Gabbard or anyone else, and doesn't pro provide much evidence, what do you think people on the right say? They say, well, look, this is just the left calling anyone they disagree with a Russian asset, a foreign asset, trying to smear them. And it actually strengthens Donald Trump. It makes it look like he is legit when he's saying it's a hoax and all the rest. And um, I don't think so. I don't think. Um, it's a hoax and uh, I think that she's really playing into Donald Trump's hands and it's it's not uh, a smart thing to do it's very dangerous for our country to go down this road of just attacking people and not providing evidence and 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 we've seen it uh, with respect to me where I had colleagues because of some of my foreign policy stances and surveillance stances you know um, I'm for uh, more non-interventionist foreign policy I'm for protecting people's privacy. I had colleagues, uh, at least one colleague called me Al-Qaeda's best friend in Congress. Um, you know, these kinds of smears have no place in politics and, and we should really stop it. If you want to accuse someone of something like that, present some real evidence. Yeah, that, that, that sloppy use of, of really charged words. I don't, I don't think this started with Trump at all, but like the, the word treasonous, I mean, that's yeah. a, that is about as serious of a charge as you can throw at someone in politics, and we throw it back and forth like nothing anymore. Right, and and look, nobody is saying to people on the left, nobody is saying Trump is a good guy. I'm, I'm certainly not saying that. I mean, there are people who say that, but I'm not saying I, it. I've met those guys. <laughs> I've met, I'm not saying that. Uh, Trump throws things around loosely all the time. He makes all sorts of false accusations without any evidence. Um, so... Uh, I don't understand why people on the left won't hold Hillary Clinton to the same standard. You know, we should criticize Donald Trump when he says that someone has committed treason or something is a hoax or whatever. And he's just making things up um, when he when we see something with our eyes or hear it with our ears. And then Donald Trump says, no, you should believe the opposite. We should call him out on that. And similarly, we should call out Hillary Clinton when she makes accusations without any evidence. But her, you know, what really motivated her comment, and she's she's come up with various theories as to why she lost the election, none of which involve her responsibility for losing the election. Right. But but she's she's complaining about third parties. And and I, I think this is this is one of the most uh, challenging arguments. And I believe it's a myth. But she she basically argues and a lot of Democrats argue that that Jill Stein and the Green Party siphoned off enough vote in battleground states that that Hillary Clinton lost the election um, that dynamic played out and and I was I did a full disclosure I was doing a Gary Johnson super PAC and and there was a time when Gary was tied essentially tied with Hillary Clinton for the youth vote 
and there uh, you know some some flip was switched and 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 the questions to Gary started getting a lot tougher and I think that's where that's where blunders like Aleppo came from but the dilemma for third party candidates as you get closer and closer to the election is the two parties say well you're just helping that guy who's really bad win so fall in line and come back to come back to your tribe and 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 vote partisan yeah and that that's a convenient thing for them to say and it perpetuates the system we have right now um this is the kind of system that puts people like donald trump into office um that uh, could have put someone like hillary clinton into office frankly uh, this system where you're supposed to just fall in line with your party and forget about principles and forget about morals, forget about character, forget about integrity. Um, and I think that's really dangerous for our country. And, and I'm, I'm trying to get people to wake up on this. Um, we have to vote for the candidate we believe in when we, when we go to vote. Don't just vote for the one you think is the lesser of two evils. The only way it changes is if everyone goes and does what they believe in. And um, it, it is certainly possible for a well-qualified candidate to beat uh, a Republican candidate or a Democratic candidate for president. It just that the people have to uh, believe in that person and they have to get past this idea that you can only vote for these two parties. So one of the and I don't know if you have an opinion about ranked choice voting, but, you know, one of the dilemmas for engaging young people in politics is those sort of crappy choices that they they get faced and like why would you go stand in line if if your choices are x versus y um but how do you combat the argument that um they just can't win they can win i mean it look it will take the right candidate at the right level of of um you know, candidacy to to make that impact. I mean, you can't just throw any candidate on a ticket, um, whether it's libertarian or green or an independent an independent run, and think that they're going to succeed. It, it does take the right candidate. Candidate quality does matter. But um, you know, the the idea that uh, you have to choose between these these two parties is an idea that the parties love because it perpetuates their power, and um, it allows them to do the wrong thing repeatedly to tell you that they're doing it for the sake of stopping the other guys. So it, it really is just a matter of belief. Uh, Americans just have to uh, change their thinking about this, change their mindset. Um, you know, I, I've looked at ranked choice voting. I, I think it's an interesting idea. I haven't worked through all the uh, calculations of, um, you know, the pros and cons. Um, but I do think that we do have problems with our, um, our election system that make it challenging for uh, third parties and independent candidates to win, and we should do away with all those, all of those disadvantages as well. Well, that's that's and, and when I refer to the two-party duopoly, I mean it in the literal sense. The people that write the rules by which third-party candidates might be more viable um, are members of the other two parties, and it's, yeah. it's it's particularly glaring. I mean, it happens at the state level as well, but it's particularly glaring at the presidential level. The presidential debate commission. Um, keeps raising the barriers to entry to, and I, I forget what it was when Ross Perot got on the presidential stage, but by the time Gary Johnson and Jill Stein were trying to get on that stage, you had to be polling at 15% mm -hmm. in five independent polls. By the way, five independent polls curated by the Republicans and Democrats to determine what was the best poll to choose from. 
And, and by the way, Tulsi Gabbard has complained about this as well when she was excluded from one of the Democratic debates. But they, you know, there is there are these barriers to entry that are very real and very difficult to break down. Yeah, and and they're just a fact of life that we're going to have to um, push through. I mean, what I would say to people is uh, Donald Trump himself, as much as I, you know, you know my feelings on Donald Trump. (laughs) But Donald Trump himself broke through a whole bunch of barriers to get elected president. Now, it's true that he was a celebrity and he had like he had a lot of name recognition, but he also had a lot of obstacles in the way that he broke through. And it, if anything, he showed us that um, there's hope for other people. There's hope that anyone can become president. I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump became president. He had, he had the party establishment against him, and he gave hope to other people that they could become president. So whether you like Donald Trump or not, and I don't, um, he really did show that there is a way to break through. And it takes a charismatic candidate who can speak to the people and who gets a lot of, you know, gets a lot of grassroots support. Yeah, the, the, the cracks in the armor, I guess, I guess you could go all the way back to Howard Dean, um, who, who his campaign, former campaign manager famously wrote a book, the, the Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which was radical back then. But now, obviously, technology and social media is, is ubiquitous. But, but the Ron Paul movement was fueled by that. Uh, the Tea Party was fueled by that. But, you know, more recently, you know, guys like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, have are kind of disrupting the the status quo within their parties. That's generally a good thing, I think. Yeah, of course. Um, and and I admire the candidates on um, either side of the aisle, and and those you know who are not in either of the parties who will break the mold, who who are willing to fight against the establishment. So uh, whatever you might think of um, Bernie Sanders or AOC or some of the people on the left. Um, at least they are taking on the establishment on their side in, in many different ways. And there are people on the right who do that in, in different ways. And I might not even agree with all of them, um, but I'm glad to see what they're doing. And, and uh, Ron Paul was obviously one of those figures on the right who, who took on the establishment and paved a new way. And you don't have to agree with everything he believes. And you can still think that he, uh, he really opened a, a pathway for other people. So what... I, I read a, a recent Time magazine piece where you you say you're you're having the time of your life being an independent. What's what's it like yes. being an independent? And you're in in the house, you're the only one, right? Is right. that right? Yeah. What's so, it like? So well, you're all very, alone. I mean, it's a very uh, broad question, but um, yeah, I'm having the most fun I've ever had in Congress. Uh, I mean, uh, back home, I have uh, better support from my constituents than I've ever had. Um, uh, you know, I think people are are listening to the message I'm bringing uh, when before maybe they would have set it aside because they thought I was in one of the two parties and they didn't want to listen to that. So I think it's opened up um, uh, new pathways at home where people are willing to listen and consider what I'm saying. Um, here in Congress, also among my friends on the right, they're less upset with me from day to day because now I'm not uh, you know, on their team as far as they're concerned. So they have a different expectation. So now when you break from the party, they don't care. He's not in the party anyways. So what difference does it make if he's not voting with Republican leadership or with the president? So it's improved relationships there. Uh, my relationships on 
the left have always been uh, pretty good with my colleagues, but I think they're even better now. And, and so as a general matter, I'm, I'm much happier. Uh, a lot of the time that's spent in Congress by so many of my colleagues is spent fundraising and doing um, just party nonsense where um, you're going to meetings and it's not talking about, it's not discussions of um, principles or policy. It's discussions of how can we, you know, tactically do this or that to the Democrats this week. And, um, and I, I got really tired of that stuff. That's not what the American people send us to Congress to do, um, to go there and, and raise money and, and uh, come up with tactics to uh, mislead people about what the other side is doing. And, and again, both parties do that kind of stuff, and that's why I'm, I'm happy to break away from it. Are there, are there legislative opportunities as an independent, and you're, you're no longer like uh, trying to get a partisan advantage over the other team? Have, have you found any, any specific opportunities to kind of bring people together on any issues? Well, uh, we're going to see. We're, we're looking at this um, Patriot Act reauthorization that's coming up, and uh, I'd like to see a tripartisan effort to uh, stop the Patriot Act, and and that would be a first. So if we can get together, um, you know, get some Republicans, some Democrats, and and me on board, and um, do something similar in the Senate, maybe uh, maybe get a, an independent on there with us, and and get a Republican and a Democrat, uh, we might be able to break some new ground, and uh, it might excite a lot of people that they see it's not just two parties running things now. It's it's, uh, you know, two parties plus independent, and there's a potential for, for more down the road. So um, I, I think it does open up uh, new, new doors where people are more willing to uh, consider my views, especially those on the Democratic side, uh, because they view me as a more credible person now, now that I've taken on the president, taken on uh, my former party. They view me as a person they can, uh, they're more likely to work with so the uh both parties tend to in from my perspective be kind of schizophrenic on the whole question of surveillance and the deep state and whether or not the fbi and the cia and the administration have too much power do they not have enough power um and you've you've called out uh republicans specifically and, and president trump because they complain a lot about the deep state now and they complain about the fbi but when it comes to actually voting on specific legislation that would rein that power in, they, they want the blank check. That's what's, right. What's the contradiction? Yeah, I, the, the fact is that a lot of people in the Trump administration, the president, um, Bill Barr, certainly, and a number of the members of Congress who side with the president on uh, a lot of deep state stuff, where they're going and talking about the deep state, are actually huge supporters of the surveillance state. Um, they love the surveillance state. And I think one of the reasons that they talk so much about the deep state, uh, why it constantly comes up in talking points, is because it's a convenient distraction from the fact that they actually love the surveillance state. They don't want to suggest to the American people that there are actually bad laws on the books. Donald Trump and others want you to, Bill Barr and others, they want you to believe that the laws are just fine. Uh, Devin Nunes, he wants you to believe the laws are just fine. Kevin McCarthy, he wants you to believe the laws are just fine. Everything is fine. The problem is the deep state. Laws are fine from their perspective. The problem is this nefarious deep state. And if only we could get these bad actors out of there, everything would be great. And that's what they want you to believe. So that's why they keep going back to it. 
The fact is the laws are not fine. Donald Trump keeps signing things into law that violate your rights. So he, he says, oh, they're spying on me. And then he signs into law something that allows him to spy on everyone. FISA 702 is, a, is the perfect example of this. And then, uh, like I said, we've got the Patriot Act coming up. The Trump administration said they want a clean reauthorization of it. They don't want changes to it. And I think they want to extend it um, not for just a few years, but permanently. So um, they, on, out of one side of their mouth, they say deep state, deep state, deep state to distract you, to make you believe that it's just about bad actors. And I'm not saying there are not bad actors. There are definitely bad actors. But the point is, our system of government is supposed to work in a way that good actors also can't do bad things. Our founders didn't think, um, hey, let's just design a system that prevents bad actors from doing bad things. We want to present, prevent good actors from doing bad things. There are lots of people with good intentions when they're given power on the books will do all sorts of bad things. They'll spy on you because they'll say, well, this was passed by Congress. It was uh, duly enacted. The people's representatives supported it. So we're not doing a bad thing. These are good people who are doing a bad thing and they don't think they are. We want to stop those people. So instead of focusing all the time on the deep state, let's focus on the laws and try to prevent new laws from being put on the books that violate your rights. And let's try to take off the books laws that violate your rights like FISA 702 and the Patriot Act. This, this, this actually goes back to George Washington's original quote when he's, he's essentially warning us not to fall into the trap of, of sort of ceding power to the rule of man and some charismatic figure. It's why we believe in the rule of law, because we don't we don't trust anyone with that much power. Um, we're going to do something that I've never done before. So let's see what happens. But I have solicited questions from uh, the crowd, both online and people here have submitted questions. We had now more questions. Um, but I'm going I'm to start with a hostile one because I'm sure you've never gotten this question before. Is it from Hillary Clinton? <laughs> Why are you a Russian asset? Yeah. <laughs> um, Barbara from Pennsylvania wants to know, why are you acting like a fool and going after this president? What has Trump done that violates the Constitution? All and this, sorts of this, things. This, of course, is, uh, is, I think, a reference to impeachment. So explain yeah. your position on that and and why you're so critical of Trump. Well, I'll, I'll hopefully... And why you're not a fool. Why I'm not a fool. Yeah. Um, so I read the Mueller report. I read the whole thing. I read it very carefully. Uh, there's a clear pattern of misconduct. Um, and for people who say you, you need um, an underlying crime to be impeached, that's not correct. Um, but here, actually, the, the Mueller report did identify multiple crimes that were going on. Um, the fact that the president wasn't uh, directly involved, um, the evidence didn't bear out that the president was directly involved in, in um, these crimes, doesn't mean that he's then allowed to obstruct justice and uh, try to prevent uh, the proper administration of justice. And, and that's what he did. And there's a clear pattern there. Um, uh, one example was um, he told... Um, Don McGahn that he wanted to that he wanted him to fire the special counsel, um, Robert Mueller. And then later on, he said, no, I I, um, I want you to to create a false record saying that I didn't tell you that. Um, he went and he sent um, sent Corey Lewandowski out to tell uh, Jeff Sessions to limit the investigation to only future election interference. 
I mean, how is that not obstruction? Don't forget forget the current election interference that we were uh, reviewing. You're only going to study future election interference. And then uh, Lewandowski was supposed to tell Jeff Sessions that he was fired. If uh, and Lewandowski was a private citizen, he was supposed to tell Jeff Sessions, the, the Attorney General, that he's fired if he doesn't do it. Those were uh, just two examples from the Mueller report, and there are many other examples from the Mueller report, um, including using the pardon power to try to influence people, which he very clearly did try to do uh, multiple times. You can't use the pardon power in that way to try to influence people. All of these things reflect very badly on the office of the presidency. It's not just about, is there a specific statutory crime? That's not actually what the founders were after when they created impeachment in the Constitution. They were talking about conduct that violates the public trust, where you're abusing the powers of your office. It might actually be statutorily allowed, but it's still an abuse of power. And that's what they were after. And now we've got this Ukraine stuff and um, this stuff where uh, we all read the transcript and then uh, the president presents it like it's something totally different from what the transcript says. And then Mick Mulvaney, um, you know, he's a friend. I love Mick, but he goes on TV and he says, um, you know, it, there was a quid pro quo, basically, get over it. And then later on, he says, no, no, I didn't say there was a quid pro quo. You guys just are misleading people. And that's not what I said at all. Um, you, you know, in, in some ways you feel bad for him. He's in an administration where, uh, they can't keep their stories straight and you send people out there like your chief of staff or other officials. And, uh, in some cases they're speaking the truth and then they get hammered by the president who says, why'd you go speak the truth? You need to change your story and go tell them something that's false. That's consistent with the false things that, that he's been saying. So it, it is a very difficult job, but, um, but a lot of people are going through that. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think that it's unfortunate what we're seeing. And, and I think the president continues to mislead people about, uh, about Ukraine. He continues to mislead people about all sorts of issues. So I, I'm, I've struggled to square the, the circle because, uh, many people that I respect the most, certainly in Congress have very divergent opinions on this question. And I, I have a theory as to why, you and Rand Paul don't disagree as much as it sounds like, and I'm gonna I'm gonna float it past you because, you know, on the one cent, on the one hand, you're you're a lawyer and you're you're looking at obstruction and you're looking at um, the way that the founders structured impeachment and you're you're making the same arguments as Andrew Napolitano, mm -hmm. who is also a lawyer, um, it which is a technical argument. This this act or these acts exceed. Uh, the threshold of obstruction of justice, and that's a crime. Um, what Rand and others would argue is that uh, impeachment is a is a fundamentally political process des uh, designed or evolved into something where one party tries to take out the other's guy. Do you, what's your what's your reaction to that generally? Well, it certainly wasn't designed uh, with respect to um, parties because you didn't have parties the same way you have now uh, back then. But um, I would say that it's, and I've always said this, that it's a, a quasi-political, quasi-legal. It's it's not uh, wholly one or the other. Um, it has a very uh, sort of legal structure to it, but obviously it's a political process. Um, and I think uh, really for me, I'll, I'll speak for myself because I don't, I don't, I don't want to... Um, 
suggest what any of my colleagues think on this, like Rand or Thomas or any of the others. They, they have their own opinions on it and, and they can share their view on it. But for me, um, what's critical to our system of government and critical to liberty is this idea that we uphold the rule of law, that our elected officials are not above the law and that nobody is above the law, not the president of the United States, not anyone. And um, to abuse your office, to use your office in ways that are unacceptable to the American public is impeachable. In, in other words, to violate the trust of the American people is an impeachable offense. And we shouldn't tolerate it. We shouldn't just say, well, it's okay because we don't want the left to win. We have to show, you know, we have to teach a lesson to the to libs or own the libs or whatever it might be. Um, and I think that's how a lot of people operate, where they're just looking at, well, we don't want the left to win this one, so we have to um, we have to stand with the president. And uh, and I don't view view it that way. I think we have to um, hold all of our officials to the highest level of integrity and honor, and and that's especially true of the president of the United States. The uh, and this is an issue you've spoken out as well, and I I wonder if this more fundamentally than than holding presidents to that standard is holding Congress to their abdication of, of their responsibility to rein in the executive branch because even even when it comes to, to Ukraine and and foreign aid, um, Congress has ceded the power of the purse. I don't know when they started, but there is absolutely no accountability on Congress and if they don't if they don't claim their power back why wouldn't a president just take it? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's that's been a huge problem for us um, for a long time. It's gotten worse and worse. There, there are no checks and balances. Um, separation of powers has fallen apart uh, because the president continues to assume more and more powers. And for many Republicans who are now saying, well, it's OK because um, this president's a Republican and we don't want the left to succeed and all the rest. At some point, there will be a president from the left, and uh, the president, that president, will use all the same arguments that um, that that president can use emergency powers, and that president can use the office for personal vendettas, and that president can go and abuse the public trust, and and people on the left will say, well, that's not impeachable, um, and people on the right will say it is, and we're going to fall into this this trap that the two parties really set, which is. It's all about um, stopping the other side. The other side is worse than we are. And forget about principles. Principles are for another day when the other side is completely vanquished, which never happens. There are going to be people with different opinions. You're not going to get rid of people who have different opinions. So you can't wait to uh, pursue your principles. You have to pursue them every day because um, there will never be a time when the other side is completely gone. And now you say, well, now I can be principled because the whole, the other side's completely gone. Now we don't have to worry about the other side. Uh, but that's what I hear from my colleagues time and again. Justin, this is no time for principles. This is a time for, you know, war. We have to fight each other. And then once we've defeated the other side, then we can be principled again. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, <laughs> yeah, tomorrow. will be principled. And, and that's what they say. And it, it, we never reach the place of principle then. Yeah. Uh, we got time for two more questions. Uh, one comes from Aaron. Uh, who do you favor from U.S. history, the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists? Mm, that's why? a very good question. So I think they both had um, very good points. 
But in the scheme of things, I think um, our constitution is a very good system. And it's hard to um, go back now and imagine what it would be like if you didn't have our, our current system and if the anti-federalists had really um, prevailed. Um, the, the problem we have right now is that we don't follow the Constitution. I think that it's a pretty good compromise, especially in, in the modern world that we have. Um, maybe back in the 1700s, um, the Anti-Federalists would have had a better argument. But I think actually for the modern world, the, our federal system, our Federalist system, is a good system. Um, but we need to follow it. Uh, there is a reason to have um, the states united um, to defend against foreign threats, for example. It, it makes sense um, philosophically and, and practically. Uh, there is a reason to give states a lot of room to make their own decisions on a whole bunch of other things. The, the problem is not our system. The problem is that we've decided not to follow that system very closely. And, um, and, if, and even so, we have the best country on the planet. Um, because we have that system, and as much as we've strayed from it, there are a lot of aspects of it that we still do hold to. I would love to convince uh, some of our progressive friends that that federalism, and Mike Lee makes this argument, that federalism is basically a way that we could learn to uh, tolerate and even respect each other again because we don't all have to be the same and it doesn't have to come down from Washington, D.C., that we will live X way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So make make that argument out there. Do it. Yeah, I will do. Okay. So final question, by far a most popular question. And before you answer this question, I want you to realize that if you answer it in a certain way, clicks on my podcast will explode. Okay. Now that may be less important to you than other considerations, but a lot of folks want to know when you're going to announce that you're running for president. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> I don't have any announcement. I'm sorry. Ah, no announcement. But we could have um, blown this thing up. But look, I I love representing my district, and I'm I'm doing well in my district. I, I people are supportive of the idea of an independent congressman um, running for office. I, they like that, and it's it's succeeding in my district. Um, I I think people in Washington are probably a little bit baffled by it. If they went into my district and saw what was going on, they'd be uh, baffled because I I think there's this assumption that when you leave the parties, you're in trouble. That is not true. I assure you that I'm in better standing now in my district than I've ever been, and and we're doing really well. So um, my, uh, you know, my brain says, hey, that's the thing to do. Um, Represent my constituents and um and try to change congress uh but you know i i do look at what's going on in national politics and i see president trump out there misleading people every day um telling people our our troops are coming home and they're not coming home um he's sending more troops to saudi arabia he's increased our troop presence by fourteen thousand just since may um none of those wars have ended that he claims he's ending uh surveillance continues. He expanded civil asset forfeiture. Um, A lot of things that a lot of conservatives and libertarians care about, uh, Donald Trump is totally failing. Spending is at like all-time highs. So, you know, he's he's failing on item after item, but because he goes and holds, uh, you know, angry rallies against the left, people say, well, he's our guy. Um, We can do a lot better as 
as a, an American people. And then you have on the left, you've got, um, I think, candidates that just aren't that great. Uh, I mean, I, I watched the last debate and um, it just wasn't that inspiring, frankly. And I don't know how any of those candidates are going to compete with um, Donald Trump, frankly. Um, I think that he's he's got a shot at winning against those candidates. I, I think that they are they are generally not strong candidates. Um, despite all the things I, I said I don't like about Donald Trump, he goes out there and he's charismatic and and populist and people are driven to that. So you need better candidates and all of them, all the leading candidates are over 70. So now you've got Donald Trump over 70, three leading candidates on the Democratic side over 70. I don't know. It sounds like there's an opening uh, for someone else. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to rule that out. It's a long answer. That was, that was a very crafty way of answering that question. <laughs> uh, you guys want to give it up for Justin Amash? Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Hello. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.